Welcome to the Redeemed Community Church podcast, where you can hear sermons and devotionals from our church located in Toronto, Canada. Our vision is to be a Christ-centered community that makes disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the delight of his people. In this episode, Elder Dominic Krakowski starts a new sermon series titled Mercy in a Broken World, with the first message examining the nature of who God is himself. All right, good morning once again. It's good to see all you guys here today and to everyone who is with us uh, online. Uh, This morning, I am excited to go into a new sermon series. We wrapped up our sermon series on the book of Numbers, and we're going to be doing a four-week sermon series on the topic of mercy. And our sermon series we called Mercy in a uh, Broken World. And this has been pressing on my heart uh, lately because we have seen, indeed, more and more often in this world that we live in, that there are many individuals who are suffering, who are hurting, who are in need. And a big question is, what is the church's response to these challenges? But out of all the challenges that are facing us at this moment, perhaps the one that is most notable for us to talk about as Canadians is the issue with, uh, or the discovery that we have found with our residential schools. As you have probably been keeping up with the news since May, more than 1,308 graves have been uncovered, mostly of children, um, at the sites of former residential schools in Kamloops, Cranbrook, um, Maryvale, and Penelicut Island. And what's the most tragic of this, and the most sickening really, is that the church was not a defender of these people, but was a perpetrator of their murders. And this is very, you know, sad, and, and it's disturbing, and something that we cannot, you know, simply ignore. Now, I know that for us as a church, you know, we are a new church. Many of us, including myself, we are second generation. So we don't typically associate, and, and we also look at, you know, the church that we're involved, like that's the, the Catholic church, it's not our church. You know, there's a temptation to say, that's not us, that's someone else. But the reality is, is that it does involve us. You know, the entire church is described as a spiritual family. And so even though maybe our church is not directly involved in anything that has happened, it is still important for us to respond, to, be, to learn, and to grow um, from what has happened. So we're going to be going through this sermon series in the next four weeks, and today uh, we are going to be beginning by talking about just the nature of who God is himself. So this week's sermon series, we're going to be looking at Zechariah chapter 7, and the title is The God of Mercy, and we're going to see how God desires there to be mercy, and he desires his people to live in peace. So we're going to launch into verses 8 through 12, but first, let's take a time to pray together. Heavenly Father, we are embarking on a difficult topic but one that is important to speak about and important for us to learn about and to grow into. God, we need to grow in your mercy 
We need to grow in your compassion. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to do that over these next four weeks, starting with this morning. So I pray, God, that your word would come alive to our hearts today. Holy Spirit, would you minister and help these words, not just to be something that we learn intellectually, but something that shapes us and changes us. So we submit ourselves to you, O God, this morning, and to you would be the glory and honor. Amen. All right, so let's look at Zechariah chapter 7, verses 8 through 12. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. Now, as a brief background, let me quickly ask, have any of you ever had to undergo a major renovation to your house or perhaps maybe to the house of your parents? And I'm talking about one where you had to gut everything down to the bones. Uh, so recently, my wife and I, we are, we've had to completely gut our basement due to uh, a flooding issue that we had. And we we're going to keep it simple to start, but then as we you know, exposed more things, we saw that more and more was unsafe or built improperly or not up to code. So we said, okay, let's scrap this all and we are going to build fresh. Now, it's a lot of work and it costs more to just tear everything down and build from the bones up. But there is a benefit to it as well. And the benefit is, is that we can make sure that the space is built up right. We can make sure that it's built safe, that it is built functionally, and it is built to the aesthetic that we want. I say this because in the book of Zechariah, the people of Israel are about to go through a rebuild or renovation of their own. Now, the Israelites, 70 years ago, their land was conquered by Babylon. And Babylon destroyed the city of Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and they took many of the people out of Jerusalem into exile. And they would live there for 70 years until it was time for them, by according to the, uh, what God has spoken to the prophet of Jeremiah, to return back to Jerusalem, to rebuild their land, to rebuild their city, their walls, and their temple. And while this physical renovation is important to rebuild you know, their kingdom, what Zechariah is really about, it is a call to the Israelites to rebuild or to renovate themselves spiritually. It is time for you to be rebuilt spiritually on right footing. So imagine this. You are a leader amongst the Israelites, ready to turn and head back to Israel. And you're going to undergo a spiritual renovation or rebuild, so to speak. What would you instruct the people to do? You might say, okay, we got in this situation because we worshipped other gods. We bowed down to idols. So we're heading back. And from now on, let's stop doing that. Let's stop worshipping idols. Let's stop worshipping other gods. Or you might all say, 
we got into this position because we were no longer faithful and obedient to God's laws and commands. So let's go back, and this time we are going to follow God's commands to a T. Now, these issues of spiritual purity take up a big chunk of Zechariah, and they're important. And Zechariah challenges the Israelites to be more spiritually pure, to be more obedient, to devote themselves only to God and God alone. But as we see in these verses that we've read, it appears that issues of mercy, compassion, and true justice matter as well. As the Israelites are to rebuild themselves, these are things that they are to keep in mind. And so here in verse 9, this, the central command is administer true justice. God wants true justice to appear amongst his people. And what does this look like? Well, we are told that it is to show mercy and to have compassion to one another. And you might think, aren't these two things exactly the same? Well, there's a little bit of a difference. And because of that difference, they pair very well together. When we talk about compassion, we are talking about the disposition of our heart to be empathetic and sympathetic and caring in our hearts towards those who are suffering, towards those who are in need, to those who are in times of trouble. It's about that disposition. But mercy is about action, about responding to what is in your heart, about responding to what you see and actually doing something. So God is calling out his people to be both heartfelt, but also ready to act. And then as we read on in verse 10, we learn more about God's character, about the individuals that he is asking the Israelites to be especially mindful towards. He talks about who? The widow, the fatherless, the foreigner, or the poor. Now, what do these four people have in common? Well, the answer is that they would have been amongst the most vulnerable in their society. And that's true for us, you know, today as well. When you think about those who are widowed, who are orphans without care, who are refugees, who are poor, statistically, they are more likely to live in poverty, they are likely to have a shorter lifespan, and they're more likely to go through physical or mental health uh, trauma. But as challenging as it is for these groups today, it is even more so challenging in the time of Zechariah, when there was no such thing as, well, nationwide social security nets. Let's take a widow for example. Uh, if you were a woman, everything that was yours, it actually belongs to your husband. And so if your husband dies, well, it's actually not yours, but it is instead passed on, it is inherited by your children. And if your children, for any reason whatsoever, chose not to take care of you, unfortunately, you had no legal ability, well, to get financial recourse or to get compensated in any way or shape or form. And so you were really at, you know, the mercy first of your children and then the mercy of the kindness of anyone else who may choose to help you. Now, in many of the surrounding nations around Israel, these individuals 
the widow, the fatherless, the foreigner, the poor, they were considered a burden to society, as an annoyance, as a pain. But yet, we see that God is different. God calls for these individuals to not be oppressed and to be, you know, cared for. You know, it is said that if you want to know who someone is, you know, observe how they act. You can, you can learn a lot about someone from what they have acted, from what they have commanded or what they have done. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to borrow Peter as an example just because you're the closest to me. You know, if we want to say, who is Peter? We would say, okay, Peter is a man of humor. He always has good jokes to say. He's a very funny, he's a very interesting person. Peter is also a man who serves. We know that he is usually sitting at this table week in, week out, ready to serve. We'd say Peter is a man of basketball and golf because he's always doing those things whenever he has uh, free time. Or he is a man who loves the color purple, although I haven't seen you wear that as much more recently. Well, likewise, the same as it is with God. It is not just a one-off command that we see here, but really God identifies himself as someone who cares for those who are in need. Take a look at what David writes about God in Psalm 68, verses 4 to 5. He says, Sing to God. Sing in the praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. He is a father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows. Is God in his holy place. So just as much as we would say Peter is a man who is a humorous man, we would say God is a defender of the widow, a father to the fatherless. Now, for those of us who are sitting today, I don't think that we are too surprised by how David describes God. We are not, too, we are not surprised that God is someone who cares about those who are indeed who desires mercy and compassion to those who are suffering. But sadly, especially if you have conversations now with people outside of our church, you'll probably find that many people don't have this view of God. You'll probably find that many people view God as someone who is, well, God is perhaps someone who is malicious. He might be angry and temperamental, or perhaps he is indifferent. He has created us, but he is off to the side just allowing us to try to sort out this mess that we are, find ourselves within. Now, sometimes these views are just created out of thin air in their worldview, but oftentimes there are people who are trying to comprehend or trying to work through their own hurts, their own sufferings, or the struggles that they have experienced in their lives. And sometimes, well, it's because the church has failed to demonstrate or to communicate the mercy of God effectively. You know, we opened talking about the residential school issue. Certainly, for many people, especially those who have gone through the residential schools, they don't view God as a God of mercy and compassion when they have been afflicted by the church. So, for us this morning, how ready are we to be able to properly communicate who God truly is, not who people think God may be by what their experiences were or the failures of the church to properly communicate, but who he really is. Are we prepared? Are we able? Do we know him well enough to say, no, God isn't 
like that. God is a God who is loving, who is caring, who does care about you. And so therefore, as as Christians, I think one of the first things that we can do is we should really make an effort to study and to learn more about who God's true character and his true identity is, both so that we would allow that to reflect and shape our lives, but also so that we are able to better communicate it, you know, to the world around us. Now, another question that, you know, comes up often is if God desires for his people to show mercy to one another and to live in peace, then why is oppression and evil even a reality on this earth? And the answer is, as we'll see in Zechariah, is that it's because as humans, we sin and we reject God because we are inclined towards evil. Take a look now at verses 11 and 12. It says, but they refuse to pay attention Stubbornly, they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint. So now in these verses, um, God, speaking through Zechariah, is talking about that previous generation of Israels who lived during the time of Jerusalem and why they didn't show mercy, why they didn't show compassion during their lifetime. And God says that it is because they refused to pay attention they stubbornly turned their backs, covered their ears, and eventually they hardened their hearts so that it was as hard as flint. So what is being described here is that the Israelites, even though they knew what was right and what was evil, they actively made the choice because of their sin to choose evil, ignoring the truth, blocking it out, and allowing their heart to become so hard that even logic reasoning and the most heartfelt pleas wouldn't change them. Now, as we read this, we probably imagine how could the Israelites be like this? How could they allow themselves to harden their hearts and to be dead set on what is wrong, even though they knew what should be right? And, you know, the truth is, it's easy to criticize them, but we do the same thing ourselves all the time. I remember, um, one time, Man Man asked me to do something for her. She asked me to do a chore. I don't even remember what it was anymore, but she asked me to do it, and it was just a routine thing, and I didn't end up doing it. And I was, um, I knew she was going to ask me about it later that night, so I was, you know, thinking in my mind, am I going to tell her the truth, or am I going to lie? And I kept on coming up with reasons why telling the truth is the right thing to do, why it's the beneficial thing to do, and it's the, and it's the godly thing to do. But as I came up with more and more of these reasons, I was also able to come up with counter-reasons. You know what? No, that's wrong. I shouldn't tell the truth. It's better to just lie about it. She'll forget about it in a couple days. She won't remember, and we can figure a way to deal with it afterwards, and she won't even know that I forgot to deal with it. And so I kept on having this kind of debate in my mind until I hardened my heart so much that I didn't just convince myself that, you know, lying was maybe permissible. I convinced myself that it was the right thing to do. It was good for me, and it was good for her. I'm doing her a favor. Now, this is a light-hearted example, but on a more serious note, what I described, this hardening of our hearts, it happens every single time we talk about the dark moments of human history. The Nazi perpetrators of the Holocaust, they convinced themselves that by 
conceiving and executing their plans for genocide, that they were protecting and securing the future of their people. Before the American Civil War, the Confederate States convinced themselves that slavery was okay because it would ensure that their economy would be able to function and that, it would be, that they would be worse off if their economy uh, collapsed because then more people would be you know, in dire straits. The Japanese Imperial Army and Navy of the Second World War, they raped, beheaded, and, and bayoneted prisoners of war, nurses, civilian women and children. They justified it as duty to their empire or as it is deserving because there's nothing shameful than being captive. Now, you may know that I really enjoy learning about history. I do this, um, it's just something that I do in my spare time when I have a little bit of it here and there. But as someone who enjoys learning history, the truth is it's actually very scary. It's actually very frightening when we see these repeated patterns of how dark the human heart can go about how willing or how much we are able to go to these really, really terrible places in order to think that we can you know, better provide, take care of our own protection, our own comfort, or our own security. Now, that's a bit heavy. And I know for a lot of us, we are not, I'm pretty hopeful that we are not actively oppressing, we are not actively causing trouble to those who are in need, to those who are um, suffering. But probably for us, what our struggle is, is whether or not we should choose anything to do or choose to do anything about the things that we see happening around us. So I want you to take a look um, at this quote here. It was, um, it's made famous in a speech from uh, John F. Kennedy, actually, when he visited uh, Canada. Um, it's attributed to Edmund Burke, although historians actually don't really know where it really came from. Um, but the quote says this, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Now, it's a powerful quote. You know, evil triumphs when good does nothing. Meaning that even if we are not actively involved in evil, we have the ability potentially to stop it. And again, we don't really know who is the first person who ever came up with this uh, quotation, but it is possible that they may have had Proverbs 24 in mind, which says, If you falter in a time of trouble, how small is your strength? Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? So though the approach in Proverbs is different, the message is the same. Sin is not just at work in those who commit the act, but also those who do not. And for me personally, I find that this is something that I need to do better in personally a lot. I find especially in the time of COVID, because I work from home every day, and each day I just see my home and my immediate neighborhood, that I become desensitized to the struggles of the world around me, to the challenges that our people are actually going through. And when I read the news or hear about things that are going on, it's just a news story. It's just, you know, something that's happening. It's a fact, as opposed to people who are, you know, really struggling, people who are actually going through things. And so 
a challenge that I'm personally taking, I want to take upon myself is, I want to reevaluate how can I reverse this trend of not doing anything or being complacent when there is a need for so much more to be done in our world, when there are people who are struggling that we can help or that I can potentially help or come alongside others who are helping. And so if you know, that resonates at all with you, then I encourage you to you know, join me in growing in this area over these coming weeks. But the point to make here is that it is our sin, it is us who is responsible for the oppression, for the struggles that others face. Now, we have taken the time to discuss how God is a God of mercy and compassion, and we've examined the failure of humanity, but now let's turn to the final verses of what we're reading today and see what is God doing about this problem. So in verse 12b, he says, they would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So in a world that rejected and fell away from God, God called out one people group, the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to form a nation that is different from all the others, one that is filled with people who give true worship to God, and as well as administering true justice, mercy, and compassion to each other. And all through this time, God is actually active and helpful in the Israelites Israelites meeting this end. First, we are told that God gives them the law. He gives them their law. And the blessing of the law is that it revealed to the Israelites the instructions for holy living. It showed them how they can have communion with God, how they can worship him, the purity laws, but it also prescribed how they should treat one another. The famed Ten Commandments, six of them deal with how the Israelites should relate to one another. And if you look through Leviticus, you'll find many instructions on how to treat hired workers, speaking respectively of others, canceling debts, handling disputes, all centered around themes of compassion and mercy. So the Israelites, God has given them their law to help them be a different people. But we also see that he has sent prophets among them. Through his spirit, he has sent actually dozens of prophets, everyone from Samuel, Nathan, Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, and more, they were always raised up and sent by God to remind the people of Israel who they were, remind them of their calling, and to invite them, to urge them to return back to that calling, to repent of their sins, and to stray no more. Now, this calling of Israel to be a different nation, it wasn't just to be so that they can enjoy God's blessing, and that they can be better just for themselves. But take a look at Isaiah 42, 6. It says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand, and I will keep you, and make you to be a covenant people and a light for the Gentiles. The Israelites were meant to be different so that they could be a shining example, a beacon that would cause the nations around them to be curious, to take notice of their own sinful conditions and realize how much better things are when we live in communion and in relationship with God. And so the nation of Israel to be called out was also to be an example to the world around them. 
Now we know that the nation of Israel did not live up to this calling. They fell short. But we know in the New Testament that the new Israel is oftentimes called, or the new community of God is the church. And we now are called to be a light to the nations who are living in darkness. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his disciples and the people who are listening, you are the light of the world now. No doubt referencing this passage in Isaiah. And if you take time then to read the book of Acts, when we actually see the church in action, and as well as the various letters, you will see time and time again the church living as a radically different community than the world around them, showing incredible mercy, incredible compassion. We see stories of individuals selling all that they had to be able to provide and support those among them who had nothing. We see that the church has is broken down various social barriers, that the rich, the poor, the Jews, the Gentiles, the slaves and masters, they are all gathered together worshiping God, people who would never be associated with each other coming together. And we see stories of great care and attention being given to those who were the most vulnerable, including the widowed and the orphaned. And so in light of the hurt, the suffering, the oppression that exists today, just as it has throughout all human history, the ability of Christians to display love and compassion towards others and to those outside the church to be merciful, well, it is meant to provide a spark of hope, a hope that the world would just be intrigued, be curious, that there really is something better than this dark, sad, challenging world that we find ourselves in. And indeed, that is why we opened that residential school story. It is so disheartening, so sickening, because well, they're doing the exact opposite. And so the question for ourselves this morning is, do we see ourselves as a light to the world around us, a light to the other nations? Do we see our church as a beacon of hope, of a loving God in a dark and hostile world? Or are we just going to be like everyone else? Are people going to look at our church and just say, you know, there's a group of nice people who don't do anything, who just look out for themselves. Now, in closing, we're going to talk about this more in the coming weeks, especially you know, next week, um, that the ability of the church to show real compassion, to actually show real mercy, whereas Israel failed and other nations failed, is, it's not because that there is anything special about us. It is not because we are stronger that we are smarter, that there is genetically something different about us that enables us to do that. No, the only reason that we are able to be merciful is because Jesus was merciful to us, because Jesus has poured out his love to us. And this is how the book of Zechariah actually ends. Zechariah gives this call to the Israelites that they need to renovate their spiritual lives, that they need to rebuild themselves, that it's time for them to really be faithful to God again. But it ends with this prophecy about a coming Messiah King who is going to be the one who actually brings true peace and mercy to the nations. Let's take a look at chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the fowl of a donkey. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim, and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle's bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, 
and from the river to the ends of the earth. So Zechariah sees this day where Jesus, the true king of mercy, comes back again. He will arrive, and when he arrives, he arrives righteous and victorious. He is righteous because he has fulfilled Israelites' calling to show true justice and mercy. Jesus, in his life, showed real compassion, the type that Israel could not show. And he is also victorious because Jesus, of course, well, he took the penalty of sin that we deserved when he went to the cross. He, he allowed it to die with him, and then he was raised again from the dead. And so for those of us who believe that Jesus Christ has dealt with our sins on the cross, well, we now receive his righteousness, and we are made new, and his spirit is now in us to be different. But as much as we, you know, see that there is opportunities for the church to do better, to be that light of the world. Ultimately, our hope is not just on if we can do a better job, but it is Jesus' return. Zechariah ends here with Jesus returning and proclaiming peace to the nations and establishing his rule from sea to sea and from rivers to the end of the earth. We have hope that when Jesus returns, there will be true mercy. There will be true compassion. There will be a world that has peace in it. And so if you are in any ways struggling with hope, struggling in when you look at this dark world, wondering how is this ever going to change? How will this ever get better? It feels like things are only getting worse. Well, I invite you to look and to find hope in Christ's return and in the new kingdom that he is going to bring. Thank you for listening to the Redeemed Community Church Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or links to past Sunday service live streams, please visit us on our website at redeemedchurch.ca or you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash redeemedchurchtoronto as well as on Instagram at redeemedtoronto.com.